the Borderlines podcast. We're here today with Dean Sawson of Osgood Law School. And uh, Dean Sawson, or as we know him as Lorne, um, was also my former constitutional uh, law prof in my first year of law school. And uh, as we were talking before, one of the great, I'd say, moderators on my uh, political philosophies. When I had went first went to law school, I had just spent the summer before working for the Conservative Party of Canada, and I came in with very, I would say, rigid and staunch views, um, which predated any political work that I had done. But immediately, um, one of the great things about law school is you immediately learn just how complicated everything is. And uh, I think anybody who goes to law school with preconceived notions or, philo- or philosoph- philosophical outlooks that don't respect how complicated things can be are... Uh, Law school will immediately shake their confidence in uh, their opinions and their philosophies. Um, but anyway, so what we're here to uh, talk about today, uh, there's three topics. Um, the first is, and they're all related, well, two are related to papers that Lauren has written. The first is uh, the oversight of executive police relations in Canada. And we're going to talk about uh, who gets to decide how the police and the Canada Border Services Agency act. Can the police or the Canada Border Services Agency ignore uh, what the executive says? The second is how does the uh, charter apply in the administrative law context? And the timing of this is actually rather interesting because our firm just had a decision uh, go against us in the federal court. But the sole issue was um, or major issue was what is the role of the Canada Border Services Removals Officer and considering the charter prior to removal. And the third topic is, of course, a topic dear to uh, Peter's heart and one that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is um, the standard of review in uh, administrative law. And Deanna and I were talking uh, how back in law school we used to gloss over and uh, go, oh, standard of review again when we were reading decisions and how it's such a key part of immigration law. Well, you've got over it. I still sort of feel like uh, you figure out what the answer is you want to get to, and you can justify it through a creative standard of review argument. So I still struggle with it, for sure. I think Peter will jump in a little later. But uh, So let's go right into the first topic, the oversight of uh, executive police relations in Canada. So um, before we even get into the... what in the context of federalism, which is that there's different levels of government in Canada... Where do the police fall in the federal framework in Canada? Well, first, uh, let me tell you what a pleasure it is to uh, be on this podcast and uh, be here in Vancouver with you and uh, to be able to share some ideas. It's uh, uh, not only terrific to see what great work a former uh, student gets up to, but uh, as much as law school can complexify a lot of these issues, uh, ultimately the key is to remember just how meaningful and simple they are to everyone's lived experience. If you've been stopped at the border, if you've you know had a friend or a family member touched by immigration, and that would cover most of us, uh, you just live this exercise of authority. And I think everyone intuitively wants that to be fair, wants it to be open, wants it to be consistent. Uh, and when it's not, it's something that touches uh, touches everyone. So when you ask about the police, I mean, uh, you know, this is the uh, highest level of authority we have, in a sense, because it's a monopoly on violence. Right? It's the only people in our daily life who are authorized to use force against us to do, in other words, something that would be 
illegal for anyone else but a police officer to do. So for that reason, we built in a kind of designed redundancy. That is to say, there's multiple oversight for the police. And you're right, there's a system that federalism starts uh, to shape by saying uh, there's an RCMP, so uh, this federal body that provides not just federal law enforcement, that is uh, national uh, uh, issues that we think of the RCMP for, but also local police in many parts of the country. So in Quebec, in Ontario, we've got provincial police. Uh, in many municipalities, large cities will have a municipal police force. Wherever we have a city police force uh, is generally either part of the RCMP or part of a provincially regulated body. So what's the relevance of all that? It just means that it's not obvious, depending where you are in the country, whether you fall under a federal police force, provincial police force, or a local municipal police force, or an indigenous uh, police force, uh, depending on, again, the place you live. But every police force has some kind of oversight so that when you're stopped, if you're uh, arrested, if you're asked for ID, if your home uh, is searched, whatever the intervention or invasion of your space might be by the police, or if you're protected you know, by the police when you've been uh, the victim of a crime or survivor of an assault, all of that is a scheme that has this public regulation overseeing it, not just by one body, but often by two, three, or four. And we'll talk about what those different bodies are and why we have so many of them, often looking at the same action by a police officer in the same facts. Okay, so actually, what's interesting with the different levels, I remember being under the impression back in high school that if you committed a crime in Vancouver and were being chased by the police and you drove over the Lionsgate Bridge, that they couldn't follow you and that you'd be scot-free because it's the Vancouver Police Department, uh, VPD, it's a municipal police force here, and then North Vancouver is the RCMP. But you know what, it's just a, a cool idea uh, when you think about criminal laws, is it local or is it national? We take for granted that we've got a criminal code, and so the same action in uh, you know, in Halifax or Kamloops uh, in Callaway or Toronto is either going to be lawful or unlawful. But you go to the U.S. and literally you cross those state lines and you're in a different jurisdiction. Every state has its own criminal yeah. code effectively. And what's illegal in Georgia is not illegal in California. And it's a patchwork quilt. So we've got one criminal law everywhere, but a patchwork quilt of how it's enforced and, uh, and essentially who's responsible for bringing it to life. And that creates, of course, uh, you know, all sorts of systemic and, and challenges to coordinate all that work, especially in areas like immigration, uh, refugee uh, worlds where consistency, if you happen to arrive in one port or one airport or cross border in one place, ought to look, feel, and be experienced similar to others and isn't. Well, I have to say it's almost 420, and I can expect that you're going to soon smell the difference about <laughs> in Vancouver than it is in Toronto. Exactly. But, uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> Although on that point, I was hiking in Olympic National Park uh, over the Labor Day long weekend, and we, uh, my friends came across a park ranger, and we asked him, where would you recommend that we eat in the town of Forks? And he gave the name of a restaurant and then mentioned, oh, it's next to a uh, marijuana cafe. But uh, I can't give you my opinion of the marijuana cafe because we're in a national park right now. But if we were to go back on the trailhead 500 feet, 
and be out of the national park and just back in Washington state, I could uh, maybe tell you a little bit more about the place. Yeah, and in fact, that notion of having a criminal uh, criminal code suggests to people that you are under this similar, consistent, transparent scheme wherever you are. But that idea of discretion and what gets enforced, uh, who has, again, what crimes get investigated, uh, what actually takes up the time of a police officer? Is it prevention, community education, or is it just uh, certain kinds of crimes under certain kinds of governments that get attention? That part is really scary for a lot of people, that it's not something they can predict. It's not the same depending where you live. Uh, and I think that's a part of our criminal justice system we pay way too little attention to. Yeah, and so uh, in your paper, you meant there's two questions that you ask that I think will frame maybe uh, the rest of the discussion on this topic, and it's what are the mechanisms which limit executive accountability and police oversight in Canada, and can the need for the police to remain above partisan politics and beyond manipulation by the government of the day be reconciled with the need for police accountability? And we've seen this issue arise in Vancouver um, with the safe injection site uh, and different, especially when the uh, previous conservative government um, was very adamant that it be closed and priorities of the Vancouver Police Department in enforcing it. And also with the recent election of uh, Donald Trump in the United States, where many American mayors, and I think in some cases police chiefs, have said that they're not going to help uh, President-elect Trump with any deportation plans that he has. So in the context of all this, and to piece it down a little bit more, um, you know, you mentioned that the criminal code is federal. What role, or in terms of who decides the in terms of the operational activities of police, right, what so they prioritize, what they don't? Exactly. And this is, you know, uh, one of uh, maybe it's the genius or maybe it's the craziness of federalism that, uh, you know, we put the administration of justice uh, into provincial hands, but we have the appointing of judges federally. Same thing with law enforcement. We have a criminal code, which is the federal governments to reform and deal with over time. We've seen, for example, huge rise in mandatory minimums and in other constraints on discretion in the system for judges, but we still have pretty wide open prosecutorial discretion. That is what actually gets prosecuted. Uh, and in terms of the oversight, we you know have a, a lot of oversight for uh, potential police misconduct. For example, you can go to a civilian complaint body in, in case of the RCMP or most of the provincial and municipal police forces. You can, uh, you know, put in a complaint that gets uh, investigated internally that becomes a, you know, matter of police discipline. Uh, and you've got the criminal um, courts, the civil courts. You've got all these bodies overseeing what police do. But that initial decision, what am I going to enforce, where are resources going to get spent, often does come with a political overtone. For example, um, you know, attorneys general and Ministers want to talk about guns and gangs. They want to, they know they get votes if they can suggest they're the law and order candidate. So there's a huge amount of pressure. For example, when there's a high profile uh, prosecution about to happen or a, a police raid, you've heard of these coordinated raids uh, against uh, Hells Angels or, uh, you know, other kinds of gangs. Suddenly police cameras are rolling. How does all that get coordinated? And the line between where 
politicians need to be aware something that big is going to happen. That's going to be a big media story. They're going to be asked questions about it versus taking direction on those kinds of operational decisions uh, is one that goes to the heart of the rule of law. And the way it's supposed to work is policy can uh, and often is decided with that political accountability, how money spent, you know, do we get a helicopter or this kind of, uh, you know, we have an issue in Toronto now on whether police cruisers should be gray or white. Sounds innocuous. Uh, but a white police cruiser can be spotted by anyone, and it's a deterrent, and you know the police are there. A gray cruiser blends in, and the argument is uh, much harder to detect, much more about trying to catch people than it is about preventing crimes in the first place. So that decision on should the police cruiser be gray or white, uh, those kinds of things are different than the decision, am I going to uh, stop this person in this neighborhood uh, and do I have probable cause? And is this something I can justify under the criminal code, under the legal protection someone's entitled to against unreasonable searches or arbitrary detentions with the Charter of Rights? So the, the distinction between the two is easy to say, very hard to actually uh, see in practice. And yet our entire kind of fabric of legal protection depends on it. And something I've seen, you know, discussed uh, online a lot recently is um, Prime Minister Trudeau has made clear his intention to either, I can't remember if it's decriminalize or legalize marijuana, and yet at the same time there's still arrests going on for possession of marijuana, and there are debates online, you know, can Trudeau or uh, someone in cabinet just issue an edict that says effective immediately police will no longer be arresting people? Um, or even in the immigration context when it comes to cessation, which is still on the books, can the cabinet minister say, okay, CBSA, no more new hearings? How would that, like those types of decisions fit into this different levels of accountability? Yeah, I think, you know, the reality is that on any of those fronts, our knee-jerk reaction is often, we don't want politics involved. We don't want partisanship. We don't want the politics dictating the judgment calls of law enforcement. And yet, when you've just been elected on a mandate to legalize marijuana and you have, uh, you know, people closing down cannabis shops or uh, arresting people for what you can reasonably anticipate in a year or two will be completely lawful activity, uh, what's the justification for that? Because there are lots of laws on the books that uh, you know, arguably don't get enforced at all. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this in Alberta recently. We've got a problem with the criminal code that just doesn't get cleaned up. It has provisions on the books that have been struck down. It has other provisions that make no sense. Like uh, we were just talking the other day about procuring a miscarriage as a crime at a time when uh, abortion uh, as a crime was removed 20 years ago. So whose responsibility is it not only to clean up that language, but to make sure that we don't have, you know, a provincial government uh, trying to score law and order points in one part of the country, spending resources to enforce uh, a section that in another part of the country uh, goes uh, almost completely, um, you know, unenforced. That disparity uh, leads to an erosion of public confidence in not just law enforcement, but in the kind of integrity of our criminal justice system. Uh, and I think it does no good and potentially lots of uh, harm. So we have this patchwork quilt again of decision makers exercising their discretion. 
But where you start to see patterns, and in the immigration context, you know, we've seen certain offices with, you know, such radically different approval rates than others that you can't just chalk it up to, you know, luck of the draw on who you ended up in front of. There are clear patterns that suggest that kind of inconsistency is coming from a direction or a culture, uh, whether internally or externally imposed. And that's a mischief that needs to get um, addressed. And uh, again, the uh, political side of this, uh, I think, is uh, the most dangerous when it interferes with uh, police activities. Uh, And yet you cannot ignore what's going on politically uh, if you're the police. And marijuana is a great example. So to me, the solution is to have this driven by the police themselves suggesting, in other words, not doing it um, in a black box sense, but suggesting in light of the policies that they are seeing enacted or discussed uh, in, again, a very open and transparent way, they're going to make a decision about enforcement. And uh, just before uh, we started the podcast, I was mentioning this in relation to physician-assisted dying in Quebec, which came out with its law before the federal government got around to changing the criminal code. And the only way to make sense of what Quebec did is if those law enforcement officers in Quebec were going to be informed by, guided by, what the province had uh, set out as its new policy around the dying process, and not simply by what was then on the books uh, in, uh, you know, in the criminal code. So perhaps I can take you back to the question that, that Steve asked earlier, was about what are the existing mechanisms to... to uh, to oversee those disparities, those regional disparities, is it complaints driven, or is there actually something more proactive than that? Right. So the uh, again, if it's individual decision making, complaints uh, is an uh, imperfect but pretty functional way of getting uh, to these things. So in, you know, abuses by an individual that are outliers or that can be shown to really have an ulterior agenda, that kind of thing, we've got pretty good mechanisms to deal with through complaint based uh, mechanisms, or simply when someone is charged to say. I ought to not, uh, you know, be found guilty because of the bias or abuses that were uh, clear on the evidence in this process. The systemic stuff, that idea of regional differences or differences uh, between urban and, and rural areas, those kinds of things, again, which sometimes are not about uh, anything malicious. For example, we've got real disparities that just flow from differential resources. Uh, you've got, you know, some places just without the resources to... Uh, you know, enforce uh, everything. So they pick and choose uh, out of necessity, what are they going to spend their time on? But whatever it is, we don't have an easy mechanism at the moment to reveal, expose, and then seek accountability for those kinds of decisions. I'd suggest when, when it happens, it's kind of honored in the breach. It's when there's a media investigation like you know, the disparities in uh, IRB uh, rates is something some academics have worked on. Great investigative journalism has shown a lot of the police uh, practices on carding. You know, we got at these things not because we had an institution charged with oversight, but because of those other exercises of freedoms, FOI requests or the media, uh, academics and their uh, academic freedom being used uh, on these issues. I guess for me, and part of what you're suggesting, um, I look at it as well from the other side. And we had a discussion on the podcast a few episodes ago 
with respect to prosecutorial discretion right. and, and how prosecutorial discretion plays out. And, uh, and when our discussion with Raj uh, Sharma was around whether or not, and he had taken a case where he had tried to force CBSA to investigate spousal uh, fraud. So in other words, a fraud in a, in a spousal sponsorship case. And um, his client felt that uh, he had been defrauded by his spouse from overseas and wanted this investigated as a form of marriage fraud. Um, and the, the Federal Court of Appeal essentially said, you can't force CBSA to do these investigations. And we have some very strong um, language from the courts insulating decisions from prosecutors. And, and the courts have always been very reluctant. And in terms of the, prosecu- the, the prosecution service at the federal level, we've actually seen in recent years uh, the creation of a, direct, a director of public prosecutions that's separate from the political um, exactly. executive. And, and I was wondering about your thoughts on that. One, the two aspects of that. So on the one is the separation of the director of public prosecutions from the political realm, ostensibly. I mean, that's the, the intention of it, and uh, and that appears to be what's what's happening. Um, at the federal level, we don't see it necessarily. At the, we do see it in, in this province, but we see it at the provincial level at different, in different ways in different provinces. But the second is in terms of not being able to look behind the prosecutorial discretion because it seems to, on the one hand, address the political interference side of what you're saying, but on the other hand, it insulates the decisions from any kind of review. And so I, I, yeah, I'm no, interested in your thoughts on, on how that plays out from your perspective. Yeah, no, it's a super uh, important point to raise. And, of course, not unrelated because in places like B.C., uh, you've got charge screening, uh, which is a term for the idea that a prosecutor has to look over what the police officer is going to charge someone with and only allow charges to go forward if there is some plausible prospect that it could be successful. Ontario, we don't have that for a whole host of labor and, uh, you know, police um, uh, reasons in terms of who's looking over the shoulder of the police. And as a result, we have one of the highest rates of wasted time where charges come uh, by the dozens uh, in ways that require lots of appearances, lots of adjournments, and it eventually gets winnowed down to only those that can be sustained. But after wasting huge sums of resources and time for the people involved, which, of course, if it's you or a loved one means, you know, often uh, if you don't have bail uh, languishing in a, you know, kind of limbo, or even if you do having this uncertainty hanging over you. So they're not unrelated, but that notion of a director of public uh, prosecutions or some separate body clearly makes a lot of sense and deals with that possibility of interference. The flip side, though, is whenever you have these bodies created that are arm's length from government, they also can be orphaned from, for example, getting resources, which requires a champion at the cabinet table who's going to argue that we need to have the funding to allow these investigations uh, to happen or to you know, ensure equipment is up to date. And, uh, and this, I think, is uh, sometimes the, uh, you know, the underbelly of independence is you can be so independent that you're, uh, you know, you don't have access to the kind of governmental coordination that even autonomous uh, law enforcement uh, or prosecutorial bodies will need. Uh, so that I, I look at it more as kind of a uh, how do you make these trade-offs more transparent? In other words, there's there's nothing that has to be super secretive about these issues of 
you know, who gets access to the uh, resources and for what kinds of things, when do we have crimes that we're simply not going to enforce. But we tend not to want to share that. Uh, there was a great story uh, the a uh, couple months ago in Toronto of a book that just surfaced. And it was a book effectively of when parking enforcement happens and when it doesn't. So if you have a particular kind of party the night before and you let the police know, you get a free pass on you know, people who come to that to get... So all this stuff that people never knew, but always assume must be at work because they've experienced, I parked there one Friday, I got a ticket, next Friday, nothing. Why is all that happening? Well, it turns out there's an easy answer. There's a guideline that says exactly who gets tickets and when and why. The problem is if everyone knows, right. the theory yeah. knows. It kind of makes them operate the criminal code in a way. Exactly. So we've got all these secrets that are only for the initiates that are shared openly inside uh, the you know proverbial blue line, not outside. And we have to think carefully about when transparency might be the best solution to a lack of accountability. We're immigration lawyers, and we are living trafficking in those secrets. So <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's true. We'll keep a few. Well, it's true, and it, I mean, you're you're absolutely right, Peter. And this whole notion of in, like consistency when we are providing advice, well somebody's asking you about the viability of a certain application yeah. and when the advice is entirely, well, it depends where you're making it. Well, um, let's, let's look at a clear example from the border setting. We all know yeah. that there is secondary screening and it's not by accident. It's not random wise. You know, it can be random, but often there is a, a particular profile. I mean, just through, if you've watched the right movies and, you know, hung out in the right bars, you're going to hear things about you know, one-way tickets or paying for things in cash or not having any luggage or, you know, looking like I do when I wake up and I'm not shaven and the uh, hair is askew. And, and of course, much more we uh, know from experience in complaints and litigation, uh, lots of profiling on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, lots of things that seem so contrary to our values. But that question becomes, you know, is there an argument for why that guideline needs to exist we want consistent decisions to be made and needs not to be disclosed. That by disclosing, you're providing a bit of a roadmap on how to avoid enforcement that we might all, from a national security or community safety point of view, uh, worry about. We've seen the same, for example, with uh, border seizures of uh, child pornography or you know a bunch of things where someone needs to share information about what we're looking for. But if we provide exactly all of that online for anyone to see, uh, we may be subverting the very purpose of it. So transparency, I think, needs to be the default, but there may be exceptions where you can say, you know what, preserving uh, public interest and community safety requires that some things not be disclosed, but you ought to have a good reason. And the problem now is we don't really look at it that way. We find the default is everything is behind the black box, and you only can pull out things that you have you know, some clear justification for. And, and of course, the stakes are much higher than whether you get a parking ticket in a lot of these uh, border cases. And you mentioned earlier that one of the uh, best ways for accountability would be for the culture to develop internally. I think, and of course, I don't practice in other areas, so maybe I'm completely wrong, but immigration is rather interesting in that it's part of the administrative law framework, so the decisions of decision makers are really respected. Yet at the same time, the minister on humanitarian and compassionate grounds can totally sidestep or make the completely different decision from what the uh, an office might make and even has an email address, the Ministerial Inquiries office, where people who don't think the department 
is necessarily making the right decision can go to the minister. Um, and I remember, I think there was a York professor who the minister personally intervened to assist. That's so right. do you think like, should the, in the context of this whole oversight and avoiding partisanship or, of course the minister is, it's a political, is a politician and his office are mostly political staffers. Um, you know, is this an anomaly in immigration law compared to others? Is this necessarily a good thing or should, do we want it to be the case that individual offices are taking their cues from what yeah. the minister's office is No, doing? look, I think, I think this gets to the heart of the problem. Right? I, you know, I spent most of my career arguing for how to humanize these kinds of discretionary decisions. They're how we reflect our judgments uh, about uh, people, about the values we care about. I wouldn't want to live in a world that just had rules being mechanically applied irrespective of someone's life. The challenge is it can't be left to the whim of a minister, uh, a particular minister at a particular time to make those calls. So, you know, the York professor uh, getting a ability to, you know, stay in the country with a child with Down syndrome uh, when the policy would have suggested uh, that pre-existing medical condition could have precluded that status is clearly right, but it's not right for just that individual. It's right because there's a policy that is problematic. So for, for my purposes, I think it's never okay to appeal to direct ministerial involvement that has that sense of, you know, kind of crown uh, prerogative, the whim of, of, the, uh, of the monarch. And that's where it comes from, are those kinds of ideas. To me, if, if you have a set of principles that you want to create as exceptions, and we clearly do, and we clearly need to, they should be transparent, and when they're exercised, it shouldn't just be because there's a, a sympathetic media story that day. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be transparent. And I just think that notion, you know, we're about to hear uh, between the time this airs and uh, a month or two later, I'm sure we'll have a raft of pardons from the U.S. president, as typically happens when they're about to leave. It's a lovely story, and there's some people who are going to have life opportunities they would have never been able to. But what kind of system of justice has one person deciding on the host of miscarriages of justice, we're going to solve these ones for reasons that matter to me and that I need to disclose to no one? That can't be the way we're going to manage our justice system. Yeah, no, I, that's a great point. Are there any other comments before we move on to the charter and event? So um, the second topic we want to discuss is the uh, the paper that you wrote and the issue that our firm recently addressed in yeah. court, which is how the charter applies to administrative tribunals. Um, and there's two terms right away there that I think need explaining. Uh, the first for our, our American audience especially is what the charter is. And the second is what is an administrative tribunal? Right. So the uh, Charter of Rights is uh, what came with uh, in the early 1980s, in 1982, when we got our constitution back, as we like to say, from the UK, uh, we, for the first time, added a Bill of Rights, uh, a set of constitutional protections very familiar to Americans for uh, over 200 years prior to that, but new to Canada that would not only protect people uh, from this kind of police discretion or uh, the conduct of public officials, but that in fact uh, could also roll back laws that were inconsistent with it. And that includes the basic freedoms and protections that will be familiar to, to many, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, uh, that notion of equality, uh, a set of criminal justice protections, uh, you know, free from arbitrary detention, unreasonable 
search and seizure, and then some things that are peculiarly, uh, distinctly Canadian. Uh, And uh, foremost among them uh, are Section 7 that talks about uh, not the pursuit of happiness, but life, liberty, and the security of the person. Again, open to a lot of interpretation. Does that just mean physical security or psychological security? And courts have really taken a broad approach to that. And then the second distinctive Canadian feature is a limiting provision so that for the majority of those rights, certainly the ones that matter most in a border security context, there can also be limits uh, imposed that are deemed to be reasonable and uh, consistent uh, with a democratic society. And that creates this particularly Canadian uh, set of cases over the last 30 uh, some odd years that have really given us a roadmap for how we're going to protect those rights and freedoms. And, uh, and the tribunal you wanted to ask. Yeah, what an administrative tribunal. So tribunal's fair, very simple. Uh, you know, we've got a whole bunch of things that are uh, about uh, disputes that go to court. And we've got policies that are exercised by government ministries. And you mentioned uh, humanitarian and compassionate leave. There's immigration officers who are decision makers in that kind of space. But for things that are neither the application of government policy, exercising a governmental discretion, uh, and are not uh, suitable for courts because they require some other kind of expertise or we want them to be done uh, quickly and without that formality, that's where tribunals have sprang up. We've got uh, over a thousand of them uh, just in, in Canada. We're not that big a country. They're at the municipal, provincial, federal, indigenous levels of government. And they cover everything from uh, social benefit disputes, disputes about uh, labor rights, disputes about environmental and energy decisions, disputes about um, even how human rights codes uh, are to be applied, and of course a whole host of expert areas, uh, you know, nuclear safety or uh, the uh, Competition Act. So tribunals are everywhere, and they're all defined by that one similarity. They're created by public authority. They exercise uh, it in making their decisions, often you know, adjudicative uh, uh, judging type decisions, and they're at arm's length from the government of the day, uh, so that you know they're not just a part of that structure of government. They all have that level of independence to them. And I think it's I, it always surprises uh, people that you know every Canada Border Services agency deciding whether to let somebody into the Canada into Canada is considered an administrative tribunal in, exactly. the, in the administrative law. Um, so then. The question that then arises, and I know when we're talking about standard of review, which uh, and Peter will lead off in a bit, it's important to remember when we talk about that, that um, it's everything from the Atomic Energy Agency of Canada right down to uh, your visa officer deciding whether to issue a visa is should those people at the border level, at the immigration division... Um, and should it even be different, the degree to which each of them considers the charter in when they're exercising their decisions? Look, I mean, there's a great uh, line that um, uh, Chief Justice uh, McLaughlin had uh, a number of years ago in a case, which is uh, that the charter is not meant to be a holy grail. It's not meant to be this elusive, august thing out there that only gets invoked in the most serious cases in the most formal way. It's meant to be everywhere. There's uh, the section of our Constitution that, uh, in fact, empowers this uh, uh, Charter of Rights to 
uh, be given life says it's meant to be the supreme law of the land. That means it's got to be everywhere that legal authority is exercised. Uh, and in fact, you can make the argument that it has to be in the border uh, you know, services agent or the visa officer or the people, in other words, who are touching so many lives in such profound ways more than it needs to be in, you know, more formal settings. And essentially, this is the accountability structure for our most fundamental values. And the people who are most vulnerable to public authority are typically those who are the recipient of a discretionary decision, where, in other words, it's not set out here is if you meet this test, you're going to get that result. Right? It's, you know, if you meet this test, you're eligible for another person to decide whether you get in the country or whether you get that exemption on uh, humanitarian and compassionate grounds or makes a decision about the risk you're going to face if deported to a country. Will you face torture or uh, is it deemed to be a safe, uh, you know, third party country? Those are huge yeah. determinations in the lives of people and that again are subject to real rights and freedoms being infringed, even though no one has a right to cross the border to immigrate to a country, everyone has the right to be treated in a just, fair, and equal way. Have you made charter arguments before the uh, Immigration Division and the Immigration and Refugee Board, Peter? The charter arguments from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but you would do you put them in visa applications? Well, this is uh, actually this is the question yeah. that I was I was going to um, bring up with uh, with Lauren is and, and your your paper talks about charter values, right? And um, I think it might be helpful just in terms of our discussion. Can, can you talk a little bit about the distinction between charter rights and charter values? And For sure, you, because I think it's a fundamental distinction. Right, and they both apply to tribunals, and in particular will both apply to, for example, the Immigration and Refugee Board that uh, so many will deal with in, in, in these fields. So I start with the Charter itself, which again uh, has these protections, has a uh, provision that says you can apply to any court of competent jurisdiction to protect them. And the uh, question became, you know, early in the day, what about tribunals? Are they courts for these purposes or not? And, you know, the Supreme Court went back and forth itself in trying to work this out. In fact, had a decision in 1996 that it reversed in 2003. That's a short shelf life for the court to double back on itself. But initially came up with a very narrow test uh, in 96. And in fact, uh, I mentioned uh, Chief Justice McLaughlin's line about the Holy Grail. That was from that 96 case said in dissent. Well, by 2003, that's the majority view, that we need a large, expansive uh, approach that says wherever charter rights might be infringed, that's where you have to be able to bring the claim. So tribunals, basically any tribunal that's making a decision on legal issues is going to have the ability to hear that charter uh, claim. Problem is, some of these tribunals, are their hearings are a half hour, an hour, an hour and a half. Many by people with legal training, lots by people from other professional and, and diverse walks of life. Uh, they're not protected by the independence that judges are, so they're more vulnerable to that kind of political interference. They're often appointed for just two or three years, so it's a very different environment to see charter rights applied in those kinds of settings with such diverse, it would be the, uh, the positive way to look at it, uneven and inconsistent unprepared and not trained for, for this task would be the negative way to look at it. So one of the things the court did is, uh, Supreme Court did uh, just a few years ago, just starting in 2012, it said, well, 
you know, if what you're challenging is discretion, is this uh, decision by that border agent, really treating that person like a tribunal in this way to make a charter claim to and have this, there's a whole way of providing evidence of whether the charter's been breached and then the government gets to provide evidence of is it justified. Just makes great sense for a courtroom that you know everyone's represented by lawyers and making these elaborate you know eloquent arguments makes no sense for the lived experience of people in in the you know in a discretionary context. So charter values was developed to cover the uh, much of the same terrain, but the idea there is it applies uh, to any decision that is exercising your discretion. And it simply calls on the person making that discretionary decision to balance the objects of their authority, uh, be it it border uh, security or protecting vulnerable people at risk if deported, etc., with the charter rights at stake. And they may be, again, uh, life, liberty, security of the person, and often will be in immigration settings, but they could be freedom of religion, freedom of expression, equality for LGBTQ, lots of different issues will come up. Uh, that need to be balanced against those uh, statutory goals of either, you know, border security or applying the Immigration, uh, you know, uh, and Refugee Protection Act. So that's the difference. The charter itself can apply in that formal way and can lead a tribunal to give a remedy that is within its power to give. Tribunals, for example, can't strike down laws. They can hold them, in, you know, inapplicable in their one case. But they can't say for the whole uh, of the country that's no longer going to be a provision of the act in the way a court can. But charter values is more diffuse, can apply in a much more flexible way to ensure that those who are exercising discretion are mindful of these rights and freedoms, uh, but don't lead to that formal process in order to, you know, to get a hearing of your charter rights. They're supposed to be baked into what that official does. And if they don't do it, you can bring the kind of review that under administrative law is pretty easy to bring, happens much more easily and with much less resources and expertise needed than a formal charter claim. Because I guess one of the challenges that we face in the immigration context is that a lot of the decisions we make are made extraterritorial. In other words, they're made outside of Canada. And we have a number of decisions from the Supreme Court saying that the charter doesn't apply extraterritorially outside of some very extreme circumstances that generally people aren't being tortured in our embassies overseas. So it's those exceptions don't apply. Um, That... uh, Say generally, I have no reason to think they're ever they ever are. I'm not saying, I'm no, I should say generally. It's but, but keep in mind, but, arguably, charter values apply everywhere. So the charter itself may have these limits and does have these limits. In fact, there are statutes in BC and elsewhere that will say particular tribunals uh, don't have jurisdiction to apply the charter, and so you can't do that first thing I was talking about in those settings. But even those bodies have the same yeah. charter values obligation, which is really, another, I mean, it's it's uh, not a new idea. It's really an old idea of saying, if you have discretion, it means you have choices. There's not one right answer. Uh, and this is a way of saying the answer that is uh, to be uh, sought by the decision maker, uh, if it's going to be reasonable, has to be the answer that best and most upholds those charter rights and values. So there's still a balancing to be to be done, but effectively, wherever you have more than one choice, the choice that most respects and preserves the charter values 
is going to be the reasonable one in those circumstances. And this also goes to the situations in the immigration context where it's a decision that doesn't have a right of appeal to an administrative tribunal. Um, And yes, there is a judicial review process available, but it requires leave of the court. And so again, going to Steve's question to Peter that the charter values should still are still arguable in that context, uh, even... Well, I think for me, the, one of the places where I often find myself arguing charter issues or charter values is in the context of criminal inadmissibility. So when I'm dealing with, uh, and I deal a lot with the overlap between criminal and immigration law, and you know, someone has been convicted of some offense in Utah that would never be recognized in the context of our charter values here, or the way that they were convicted or the way that the the prosecution went about and there were good reasons to uh, distinguish it and so that's where I often find myself bringing those types of values in in terms of saying well look you've the charter may not apply here but you need to understand this in this context mm-hmm. and uh, yeah and no, I think that's exactly uh, right and also is a way of uh, you know, getting out of the rabbit's, um, uh, you know, hole we found, fell into with extraterritoriality, where again, we want to claim that wherever, uh, you know, a, a Canadian is subject to, uh, you know, this kind of uh, rule of law breach, and we saw it with, uh, you know, Guantanamo and uh, Omar Cotter, we've seen it with lots of less high profile uh, cases along the way. Uh, it's it's not a fruitful argument to necessarily uh, look at where the charter can produce that formal remedy if you actually have those decision makers bringing the charter values with them wherever they go, uh, whether it's sharing information, using information obtained by others, extradition, uh, deportation, all of these that have a nexus to a Canadian decision maker, arguably... You know, it's much more effective to say that the charter values are going to constrain or circumscribe those exercises of power than worrying about those formal jurisdictional challenges where the court gets tied up in knots and worrying about how do they uh, export uh, the charter to everywhere that people might be subject to uh, decisions by foreign governments or other law enforcement bodies over which Canadian courts don't actually have remedial control. They can't order another government's law enforcement agency to do or not do something. It's about what gets done with that back here. And you referenced also humanitarian and compassionate style appeals as well, where sometimes the argument you're making about the impact of a negative decision is what the person will face uh, outside of uh, the charter's protections. But you know what? I mean, we tend to focus on the, uh, the charter and the rights of individuals for good reasons. But I'm struck by how much also, coming back to our earlier discussion, is really about resources and the internal culture of these law enforcement bodies. And you'll, you'll recall this better than, uh, than I will, when the risk uh, assessment unit was moved from uh, a, uh, a same place that humanitarian compassionate reviews were being done in that immigration public service to the border uh, security area. And there was an interesting uh, class action, I remember uh, Lauren Waldman and some others were involved in, that effectively said that shift of a risk assessment unit from a rights-protecting part of the infrastructure to a security law enforcement part of the infrastructure 
led to a, a really different set of outcomes. And you couldn't pinpoint it to one. You couldn't say, in this one case, here's what someone did differently. But in the aggregate, you got a whole cultural shift that went from a default saying we need to protect vulnerable people who might be sent back and be abused to we need to protect the borders and the integrity of who gets across. And the question you start with can go a long way to the kind of outcomes you end with, uh, I think is the moral of, of that shift. So, and one of the questions that I had just as uh, you were talking, and this would be a good way to also work in the third topic, standard of review, mm -hmm. is on this issue of the rule of law, one of the things uh, that I've been somewhat flabbergasted with in the immigration context is this notion that different individual immigration officers or immigration tribunal members can determine what the test for something is. So, I mean, most commonly arises or used to arose in the citizenship context, which was that uh, what counted as residency, physical presence in Canada right. versus ties to Canada, essentially, um, an individual citizenship judge could choose which test uh, that they would apply. And from a rule of law context or a charter values context, if rule of law is a charter value, that seems extremely problematic and floors anyone who understands it. Yet at the same time, and maybe now you can talk about trend, it seems like that multitude of possible legal tests based on what the individual tribunal member decides the test will be, at least at first glance in our conversation, seems problematic with it, the rule of law and a charter value. Yes, so Peter, you want to bring a trend in and then I'll, I'll respond to, to both. Well, I mean, sure, it's, uh, and I think it's not necessarily just about Tran, but I think that Tran is, is a case that we're arguing in, uh, in the Supreme Court in January that is, um, among other things, deals with what the Federal Court of Appeals said were two divergent interpretations of the law that around how you interpret what a term of imprisonment is. And it makes a difference as to whether or not Mr. Tran, who's been here for 25 years and has four children in Canada, gets deported or not. In other words, the decision as to whether or not he gets deported is almost like this bizarre Schrodinger's cat where the law could be A or it could be not A at the same time. Yeah, no, I And think, it's, yeah. it's very difficult um, from a... Uh, and, and I think that maybe perhaps we can start with the rationale around what happened in the standard of review. Uh, I mean, not to go through 30 years of jurisprudence, but I think that the, um, and for me, I think some of the fundamental principles of it have come, at least in my understanding of it, is from one of your colleagues. I guess it's one of your colleagues at the, actually at the U of T, I guess, is uh, David Dysonhouse. Right. Where, and, and talking about that relationship between the judiciary and the administrative state. But um, perhaps you can talk about your understanding of, of how we got to the point where the court says black and white can both be yeah, correct interpretation or reasonable interpretations of the law. Yeah, so no, the law, law of physics uh, has no application to administrative <laughs> law in, in Canada for sure. But the story actually, you know, is complicated, has lots of twists and turns, but it boils down to a very simple proposition, uh, which is for a lot of people, the rule of law means when I'm subject to a decision and I feel it is uh, wrong and unjust, I ought to be able to go to a court uh, and have that fixed. Uh, by, I ought to be able to say 
uh, that there's a right answer and this wasn't it. Uh, and that, for a lot of our history, has been a fundamental uh, principle, particularly around those issues of, you know, no discretion is unbounded. There's always limits to it, uh, whether it's limits of bias or limits of there being relevant uh, factors that are appropriate to look to and some that aren't. Uh, we've, we've talked about a few of them, partisan considerations or racism. Uh, so we have to have some ways to fix abusive state conduct. And uh, access to the courts has been a constitutional right as important as any other, because if you didn't have that, all the other rights would have no real remedy. Problem is that we developed in this complex administrative state all these agencies, tribunals, bodies to do the things that courts can't do, either because they don't have the expertise, they're too cumbersome, too formal. Uh, and in order to protect the integrity of all those, the government that set them up uh, said it ought not to be open to a court just to come and interfere with, you know, a decision of the nuclear, uh, you know, regulatory body or the body charged with making these judgment calls in immigration or labor boards or whatever it might be. And these ideas fundamentally clash. So we want to respect that sense of another body having the expertise and authority to make that decision. And we want to respect at the end of the day, those, you know, uh, judicial independent protected courts that have that constitutional jurisdiction to ensure there's not going to be some abuse by whatever that administrative structure might be. And so the way we've worked that out, we call the standard of review, but it's really another way of saying, uh, how do we ensure that courts are sufficiently respectful, deferential, uh, not interfering in what our democratic process, our parliament or legislature has set up as an alternative means of decision making. So you, in other words, uh, you, you gut that if courts could just walk in and, and change things as they saw fit. And again, it was coming up these debates at a time when courts were pretty conservative reactionary places. You know, some people will remember this story of the New Deal or the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Canadian equivalent of it where socially progressive governments with democratic mandates to provide more state assistance for vulnerable people were held back by these conservative courts looking to protect property rights. That was the kind of mentality. Well, now we almost see the reverse. We worry about centrality of government power, the capture of these agencies and discretionary decision makers by governments with political agendas. And we look to the courts as a place where uh, we can find that progressive bulwark for our freedoms and our rights. Uh, so the standard of review has shifted as our political culture and legal culture have shifted uh, so that now uh, it's often, as you were pointing out, uh, seen as a problem to have this scope of reasonableness, scope of discretion, include an interpretation of what a term of imprisonment means that can make the difference, uh, not just for an individual, as in the case of, of Tran, that is going to have profound impact, but an officer in, uh, you know, uh, Manitoba coming up with a very different interpretation than one in, uh, you know, one in Newfoundland has has other problems for our system. So where the standard review has landed is really to focus on this concept of reasonableness, which is now a kind of presumption. Uh, we fooled around with are there three different standards? Are there just two? We've given them different names. All the standards mean are really what level of deference, what level of respect are you going to show? So correctness, which means not much deference at all, means you're just going to go look at the decision of that administrative person or body and say, 
did they get it right or wrong? And if it's wrong, I'm going to go in and make it right as a judge. Reasonableness is where you say it's not up to me to decide what's right or wrong. That's for the administrative uh, you know, exercise of that discretion. As long as it's a plausible, possible avenue that could be taken by that person, based on the evidence, based on the statute, I'm not going to interfere. It's their call. They've got the right to be wrong, in effect. Only if they step outside that boundary would I say it's no longer a reasonable decision, and that's going to be an exceptional uh, occurrence rather than something expected to be routine. And right now, that presumption of deference means reasonableness is what will apply in almost every case. When I say almost, for example, coming back to an earlier part of our discussion, where a tribunal does apply the Charter of Rights, fundamental constitutional protections, courts have said, hey, hang on there, we've got to look at whether that was right or wrong. We can't uh, take that deferential posture when it's fundamental rights and freedoms at stake. But by and large, when an immigration officer or a border uh, uh, services agent is making a decision, the courts will only interfere if they can find something that when you look at the record and you look at the decision, you look at the power they had, can't stand up to that reasonableness uh, test. Uh, and it means that there isn't a right or wrong answer in all those settings. There's simply a, you know, a, a scope within which that decision maker is free to decide as she or he sees fit, and only outside that scope that courts can come in uh, and reverse it. So in recent years, we've seen many, many pages of uh, written by the Supreme Court uh, dealing with these issues around standard of review. Right. Um, since the decision in Dunsmuir in 2008, I think we've had probably 60 or 70 decisions of varying lengths. Recently, we had a, a lengthy op-ed uh, in Obiter from Justice Avella uh, discussing this issue. Um, how do you see this tension? Do you think this tension can be resolved this tension between the administrative state and the courts? Um, and if so, I mean, we're obviously not there. In other words, this is it, it, what the situation we're in now that was supposed to be solved by Dunsmuir yeah. hasn't been. Um, where do you see it going? Do you think it can be resolved? And if so, how does it get resolved? So uh, you're right to say uh, that too much ink, too much time, too many resources uh, you know, have been spilled uh, on this quest. For something that is going to be coherent, simple, adaptable throughout all the different diverse settings of administrative justice. Uh, the reality is, though, the, that core issue of how to navigate between the rule of law and those protections on the one hand, uh, and giving some uh, justice to what the legislatures have tried to set up in coming to, you know, in search of different policy outcomes on the other. That's not going away. So the fundamental problem of the standard of review really is the problem of how we're going to uh, balance this search for the rule of law with the realities of the administrative state. So we're going to call it different things. And every so often it seems to go, you know, within a five to seven year window, we have some fundamental overhaul and we create a new test and we give it a new name. But ultimately, we have... Peter likes to compare it to the Apple plugs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the built-in obsolescence, where we know there's something in there that the next generation is going to be new and improved. And every time we start that synthesis, we always talk about how, uh, you know, this time we're going to get it uh, right. 
Uh, and Damsmeer, which really does talk about, uh, you know, something that uh, is intended to be itself streamlining, a synthesis, getting rid of the, for, you know, formal test and multiple standards, really is evolving at this point into a presumption of reasonableness. And I think that is where we're going to land for a while. And the most recent decision from the Supreme Court was five to four. Lots of smart people, uh, you know, still disagreeing about this. Uh, but, you know, the challenge will be for advocates and for others uh, to work really carefully, I think, on the opportunities that reasonableness provides. And the key one, I think, coming back to our earlier discussion, uh, is transparency, is really looking to require uh, some clarity of reasons or some clarity of explanations, some justification uh, in order to take that reasonableness uh, test forward. In other words, uh, where I think the big debates in the future are going to come is what about where those decision makers just are not sufficiently clear about what they're doing or they're doing it in ways that really raise issues about uh, are they being genuine in the reasons or explanation they've given uh, in terms of their actual motivation for the conduct that you know reasonableness can follow. So reasonableness, in other words, only makes sense when you actually have reasons that can justify or show what was done uh, is, uh, is within that scope of authority for a decision maker. Uh, and that's where, again, the courts have really resisted uh, the urge from advocates to impose a rigid reasons requirement on all these decision makers, particularly in immigration and refugee settings. They've been, well, if you look at the record in front of the person, you look at all the circumstances, maybe full reasons might not always be necessary or where it would make no difference to the outcome of a decision, maybe uh, the reasons requirement can be relaxed. This, I think, is uh, where the, the fights in the future are really going to mm -hmm. be centered. Because, I, And I guess for me, I see it in the citizenship context because we have a good 20 years of experience with these divergent interpretations of the law. And my suspicion, and I think that the case law largely bears this out, is that so citizenship judges have two, essentially two tests that they can apply. There's a strict test and there's a flexible test, right? Of what and residency is. Of what residency is. So if you want to, but what my suspicion is, and if I was a citizenship judge, this is what I, the approach I would take, is that if I'm going to, if you are at, you have to have 1,095 days of physical presence to meet the physical presence test. The other test is more flexible. So if I have somebody sitting in front of me who has 1,080 days, why would I take the time to justify my decision on the flexible test when I can easily write a one-page decision on the strict physical presence test if I've decided to deny your case? And the, the result of that is that I decide whether to deny your case first, and then I choose which test to apply. And if I'm going to deny your test, deny your case, I apply the strict test. And if I'm going to allow your case, I apply the flexible test. Yeah. And I, and for me. And they're both within the range of reasonable possible. And they're both, outcomes. they're both reasonable. And, but the problem is that you, you have to provide no justification for choosing 
one test over the other. Where both, in other words, are already uh, established as a plausible way to interpret that standard. Correct. And, And that, for me, I see as... And we're seeing that in the trans situation with the, at the Immigration Appeal Division, where, in fact, we got a decision from the Immigration Appeal Division that said, well, there may be cases where it's not a term of imprisonment, but your guy is just a bad guy. Well, so this is what I was going to get at, which is the, the kind of scenario you're talking about really is one of the many ways, you know, thinking of Leonard Cohen's passing uh, not long ago, the cracks that let the light in. Right? It's one of the many aspects of these tests that really is uh, only something that makes sense when you look at the uh, realities of a particular case, whether you're, you know, your guy is a bad guy or a good guy, clean hands or not, in the eyes of a decision maker. Because where there is that sense of doing justice, there are you know, enormous opportunities in a discretionary regime like our immigration and citizenship uh, to do that. And... Uh, enormous opportunities where you've made that, whether it's a credibility finding or a, an instinct that never has to be fully explored or explained, uh, but where you've made that decision. And, and really, I'm not sure in any discretionary context you can ever flush that entirely out of the system. In fact, I remember talking to some immigration officers once. It was a fascinating discussion, and it was about whether someone's claim of uh, fear of being returned to their country of origin because of their sexual orientation was going to be accepted as a matter of credibility. Very little evidence on the record. And uh, and I was talking to these officers. It was in the context of a training thing, so it's not part of the case. And the officer in particular said, but I knew it was true. And I said, well, on the basis of what? And he referred to a family picture that had been in the file because uh, the whole family was seeking uh, a redress that was not offered for the family, but was for this individual. And so you could just tell. Right? And, and what that meant to me was, again, a huge flaw in administrative law, which is all these protections apply only when you get a negative finding. The person let in, who might be let in on the same kinds of hugely stereotypical views of what someone who's gay looks like or acts like, uh, something that we would be up in arms if someone were kept out of the country on the basis of, let's say, we never have any accountability for positive decisions. We just assume that's not what administrative law is there for, even if it may be a positive decision based on the worst uh, kinds of uh, you know, racist beliefs or uh, casualness of, well, it was more time to say no and I was busy that day, so I said yes. I mean, all kinds of arbitrary injustices which may get perpetrated and never found out because they result in positive determinations. So I think administrative justice really is a imperfect way of getting at these challenges. Much better, in other words, to spend our resources and time and thought on how these individuals are selected, trained on the working conditions, on you know support, mentorship, on, on getting exposed to cultural competencies, anti-racism training, nature of Canadian uh, values, that rule of law, charter, culture. Uh, I think if we're looking at what's really going to make a difference, every dollar spent on all of that, to me, is going to have hugely more beneficial impact than the dollar spent on, you know, fighting the, the trenches. of jurisprudence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I think we were talking, I can't remember if it was before or after we started recording this podcast, which was that to me, the whole standard of review conversation always felt like that 
abstract, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin yeah, kind exactly. of a thing. And ultimately, it comes back to just this notion of a discretion can't be quantified. And so uh, there's something nebulous about it to and remember, I, I, it's not a bad thing. In other words, a lot of lawyers' instincts are we just need to get rid of the discretion, mm-hmm. just more rules, more transparency. And they're right. There's discretion that you know was at the heart of Jim Crow in, in the U.S. Discretion was at the heart of lots of bad stuff that has been perpetrated by our immigration uh, officials over uh, an unhappy uh, history. I think the Ontario Court of Appeal once called it a stain on our multicultural tapestry, whether it's the Chinese head tax or these border practices. Um, so discretion has this really dangerous potential, but it also has an enormous potential to humanize the legal process, to make it about being heard, validating someone's life experience and saying the mere application of rules wouldn't do justice to what you need, what you deserve, and what our values suggest uh, you ought to have. So, you know, I'm a big believer in discretion, but to me, the heart of it is making sure that we uh, have that shared understanding of the values transparency, accountability, so that we get at the abuses, systemic or individual, uh, and ultimately having ways of tracking this, whether it's uh, through guidelines or uh, easily accessible uh, decisions, so that it's not a black box that you're walking into when you're subject to that kind of authority. And again, when you have a complaint, when you're treated unfairly, that there's an easy and quick way to correct that kind of uh, experience. Well, and I do think, as you said, though, sorry, uh, Steve, about the the reasons um, that that is a value add for somebody to at least, even if they don't agree with, but at least understand and have an opportunity yeah. to to see the the machinery behind the decision that has had an impact on so their lives. You know lives. what the biggest irony is? We talk a lot about the Baker case, and it was a great landmark in in uh, you know in, in uh, requiring. Uh, reasons in some of these cases. The irony was, uh, in Baker, when asked, reasons were provided. And the reasons were provided because there's no legal consequence. There was a belief that this is an entirely discretionary decision. You want to know why I did it? Here's why I did it. And it was, you know, full of what ultimately the court found to be bias, stereotypes, mm-hmm. poor grammar, you know, uh, puzzling uh, capitalization of certain words in what was a back of napkin memo from one immigration officer to another. Uh, but the irony for me was it was an actual window into the authentic decision-making of these officers, officers Lawrence and Caden. You actually knew what was going on in their minds. So something that looked like a travesty, uh, you know, in terms of the reasons that were given, actually represented one of the last windows in that area of law that I think we've seen. Because the minute reasons were required as a matter of law, Council got in there, provided a template that says, I've considered all the evidence and all the circumstances in light of section, you know, 23 of the act, whatever it was. And, uh, and given the, you know, careful consideration of all of the above and insert evidence here and insert name yeah. and decision maker here. Do not use all caps. <laughs> right. You get this boilerplate, uh, passing itself off as reasons, which meets every legal standard and gives you absolutely no authenticity. Uh, of what's really going on in that decision maker's mind. So the, the task for me is when I say transparency, it's not getting reasons that are these pre-masticated, uh, you know, kind of uh, tested for uh, litigation purposes statements that, you know, are changed just by name and date. But how do you find a way to actually get an authentic window into that application of a standard? So if you're choosing between 
which residency standard, and you, you are right to, to, I think, see that as really a reflection of, uh, do I like, you know, uh, do I want to see this person in or out? And, and again, that's none of it's arbitrary in the sense that there's always a rationale. There's an instinct, a belief about someone, a belief about the system. There's stuff there that ought to see the light of day, ought to be what we justify the decisions uh, based on, even if it's just, you know, those instincts that ultimately we might be uncomfortable with. Better that we find ways to bring all that out and then have discussions about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate than to have it all in the black box. And I worry that our very system of legal accountability expands the black box rather than uh, exposes these kinds of discretionary impulses to the light of day. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's really good. Well, on that point, I think we're, uh, we've had a great discussion on uh, three major topics. So that was uh, uh, a lot to cover in uh, what was just over an hour. So we're, uh, we're very grateful for the time that you've, uh, you've taken with us. It's been, yeah. uh, it's, it's been great. Thank you very much for, for taking the time while you're in Vancouver. It's a pleasure. And uh, you know, if you're back in Vancouver, please let us know and uh, we can sit down and have another chat uh, at some point. Post-trend. Post-trend, exactly. Yeah. I would look forward yeah. to it. And, uh, and again, I think the podcast series... Uh, uh, is a great way of uh, bringing what's fascinating and important about uh, these legal discussions uh, to uh, to light and uh, look forward to, uh, to more in the future and uh, we'll be watching Tran. And with that, thank you for joining us on Borderlines today. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thank you to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our podmaster, Makeli Higgins, who's helping us to up the level of our sound uh, for, the fu- for future podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>